Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the U.S. Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. So tariffs on almost $200 billion of Chinese imports are coming, NAFTA negotiations are really tense, and so this week we are going to give you a break. We are going to talk about Indian trade policy. And we're going to do that with my Peterson Institute colleague, Arvind Subramanian. Arvind is a trade economist and an accomplished scholar, and he's also just finished a tour of duty working for the last four years as the chief economic advisor to the government of India. Arvind, hello. Hi, great to be here. Arvind, to start us out, what was your role in the Indian government? Just how close were you to the trade policy negotiations? Well, I was actually sitting in the Ministry of Finance, which formally does not have authority over, you know, the nitty-gritty of trade negotiations, which is done by the Ministry of Commerce, uh, like USTR here, for example. But of course, many of these decisions are taken in what you would call loosely an interagency process. So we all get involved and the Ministry of Finance, because tariffs are involved, revenues involved, and because, you know, Ministry of Finance has a broader role in economic policy making. Uh, I think to that extent, you know, let's just say I was part of uh, some conversations on trade. We're going to get to current Indian trade policy making. But first of all, let's go back and talk about the history here. So India used to be much more closed than it is today. Can you talk about that and, and how that changed? I think one way of capturing that, you know, before, say, 1990 or 1985, I think average tariffs were something like a 300% tariff was something that we were kind of used to in as, as we grew up as kids in India. Essentially, I think the government controlled what could be imported, under what conditions, on what terms, and of course set very high tariffs. So let's just say it was not quite autarky, but you know, a highly closed regulated economy. So how did that change? I think that beginning in the early 1980s, there was a sense that the economy was underperforming. And I think, you know, the intellectual climate started changing gradually. In fact, the way Danny Roderick and I characterize Indian reforms here is that in the 1980s, we did what we called pro-business or internal reforms. For example, you not only needed a license to import, you also needed a license to just increase capacity, for example. Nothing to do with trade. So in the 80s, those sorts of things started uh, getting uh, chipped away. And then, of course, we had this big macroeconomic crisis in 1991 when India came to the IMF. And partly as a result of that program, where, of course, part of the conditionality was to, you know, really change India's trade regime really drastically, eliminate the quantitative restrictions, slash the tariffs. But I think that was more the kind of proximate trigger for the liberalization. I think it's fair to say that at that point in time, the China example loomed large. Because remember, in the old days when people lectured India on liberalizing, you know, just pre-1980, I think what, apart from the socialist legacy, uh, we always said, we are different, we're big, you know, what suits Singapore and Hong Kong doesn't, isn't, doesn't, isn't appropriate for India. But then the Chinese example uh, of, you know, especially in the 80s when China was growing gangbusters, I think that changed domestic sentiment quite a bit. So a combination of the crisis where we had, you know, a little choice, as it were, but more importantly, a broader sense that, you know, this is the way forward. Can you characterize then the Indian 
liberalization experience from that point on in the beginning in the early 1990s? I think what happened was we had a spurt of reform in the 1990s across the board, including trade. What we did in the 80s was very interesting was we actually liberalized the trade regime more in terms of input tariffs, you know, inputs and technology and, and so on. But it, it, so we that's why we call that the pro-business reform, i.e., you know, incumbents, existing people could get things cheaper, better access, and so on. But in the 90s, we called it pro a market reform because that's when the barriers came down, scope for greater competition across the board. So in the 90s, then there was a big spurt of reform, as I said. But thereafter, over the last, I think, 20, 25 years, it's fair to say, it's been a steady chipping away at India's trade restrictions. One very important point to note was that even after the big liberalization in the aftermath of the crisis in 1991, we still maintained quantitative restrictions on consumer goods. That's a broad category of goods. But it was a US-triggered WTO case in the late 90s that finally led also to the removal of quantitative restrictions on a broad category of consumer goods. So it's been steady. Uh, tariffs have been coming down. And here's, I think, a, a really interesting point, which I think will shock even the two of you, that in terms of tariffs, I think we've come down a lot. We're probably still amongst the higher tariff countries in the world. But our trade to GDP ratio, hold your breath, is greater than China's. You think of India as this closed economy, but in 2015, 2016, our trade to GDP surpassed that of China, which you think of as a highly open economy. Listeners will surely remember the excellent episode we had with Nina Pauchnik, where she talked about some of the academic research on the impact of some of this liberalisation. Arvind, could you talk about what you understand to be the evidence on the impact that this tariff cutting had, this ending of these quantitative restrictions? First and foremost, I think that there was a huge increase in the spectrum of goods that became available to the Indian consumer. I think in in some sense, I think going from being a closed economy to an open economy, the first order impact, especially the kinds of barriers that we had, you know, just the kinds of goods that came into the country, I think that was pretty striking. Also, I think there was a, a big impact on productivity. I think firms had to become more efficient as a result of competition. I think Indian manufacturing exports grew in dollar terms at an annual rate of about 20 to 25 percent. Say somewhere between 2003 and 2010, during that time the world economy boomed, but even so India's share of world trade actually increased. Uh, so it was not just the, the growth boom that triggered that. So I think uh, that had a lot to do with not just the trade liberalization, which was very important because it provided access to world-class competitive inputs. And I think that's what the research also shows, that it was the liberalization of the inputs that had a bigger impact than even the liberalization of final good tariffs. Uh, so increase in competition, increase in productivity, I think it also then led to a big increase in exports during the that boom period. However, I think what is striking to me is that 25 years of liberalization, steady liberalization, opening up the economy, the share of manufacturing and GDP in India has remained stuck at fairly low levels. 
you know, think of it this way. I think the peak manufacturing share we reached as a share of GDP was 17%, and it's since actually been declining. And now compare that with the East Asians or with China, who during their boom period, I think their manufacturing shares, I mean, I'm making, it's not exactly precise, but something like went up from 20 to 25 to 35, 40%. But India's never did. That to me is is quite striking that we did a lot of liberalization. We reaped a lot of benefits, especially access to goods, access to inputs, improvements in productivity. But somehow manufacturing never took off in India like it did in the other East Asian countries. Okay, so going back to tariffs and quantitative restrictions, India's had 25 years or so of trade liberalization. But to play devil's advocate, if I look at how India compares to the other major economies out there in the world, its trade policy is still a little bit worrisome. So you have average tariffs that are around 13%. These are the ones that are applied. It's tariff binding, it's legal commitments that it could raise its tariffs to under the WTO or, you know, 50%. There's a whole lot of products that it's made no commitments at all for how high its tariffs might go. It uses a lot of anti-dumping and safeguards, these sorts of policies that you know, the United States and Europe use as well. Lots of non-tariff barriers on food, these subsidies. So there's still, you know, a complicated story out there for India that has other people worried. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and also what's been happening more recently with India's trade policy? I think it's fair to say that in terms of levels of protection, probably India is still higher than your average country. And uh, talking about uh, anti-dumping, for example, I think, Chad, you're the expert on this, but I think India is probably the top or the second top user of anti-dumping duties. The interesting thing is, of course, who it's targeted against. And I think it's also fair to say that most of these anti-dumping duties are targeted at Chinese imports. So I think this is a dimension of Indian trade policy that on the one hand isn't you know, kind of noticed enough but actually has parallels with what we see elsewhere around the world, which is the bilateral trade deficit with China. You know, we all know that bilateral deficits, you know, are meaningless, don't matter, et cetera, et cetera. But in the political sphere, these things do tend to matter a lot, as we are finding out now. And India runs a massive bilateral manufacturing trade deficit with China. One. Second, I think what uh, probably aggravates that sentiment is that the pattern of trade is also what one might call colonial, where we export uh, kind of raw materials to China and in turn import these very sophisticated high value added goods. So both the magnitude of the trade deficit and the pattern of that trade deficit really, I think, kind of almost incenses the political uh, system in India. And so the anti-dumping is a kind of safety valve, uh, you know, uh, uh, to uh, keep some kind of lib, uh, lid on you know, Chinese imports into India. But just to finish that, I think more broadly, there is the sense that Indian regulation uh, needs to, I think, become more liberal and not become, you know, de facto non-tariff barriers to trade. From the outside, it looks like maybe there's a bit more than that going on, though. So it seems like there have been recent policy announcements to raise tariffs, this idea of import substitution to protect certain industries, to generate, you know, made in India activity. Could you talk about that? Is is that? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, the prime minister, when he came in, uh, he had this, uh, you know, thing about make in India, which became a very catchy slogan. A- and 
my interpretation of Make in India was really to try and make the Indian economy globally competitive. That's what Make in India was about. But of course, that defines the objective. Uh, the instruments used to attain those objectives, uh, I think, were subject to kind of debate. You know, uh, some interpreted that as uh, really we want to, you know, liberalize access to, to uh, inputs, build better infrastructure, uh, you know, ease, uh, improve the ease of doing business, and so make the Indian economy more broadly competitive. Uh, but there were some others also who interpreted that as, you know, the way you become, uh, you make in India is through some kind of import substitution as well. So, so there were both these, I think, narratives uh, in play. I think recently in the last budget, there was uh, a, a, an increase, uh, not totally broad-based, but on quite a number of commodities, uh, there, was, uh, there were uh, tariff increases. And it was seen as a break from the past of uh, slow but steady liberalization because it's so it was both a partial reversal but also it was selective so the whole uh, rent seeking that comes into any kind of selective uh, you know action which we're seeing also in the United States I think that raised some uh, concerns in India and you know uh, Arvind Panagaria who's a trade economist at Columbia uh, and who was in the government was very critical of that and there have been a number of voices in India critical of that uh, as well the way I understand what happened or the way I, I try and understand it is one is it's partly again this whole China angle where because if you see the products on which these tariffs were increased many of them were kind of you know mobile phones and things like that which come from China uh, uh, so that was part of a part of, of the motivation another part of the motivation was the kind of old sense that uh, you know you provide these, uh, uh, you impose these tariffs and then encourage some kind of tariff jumping FDI into India, especially in the cell phone sector. That was part of the motivation. So that's kind of part import substitution as well. But I think also part not of the motivation, but of the legitimization of that action was what is happening internationally. Because after all, you know, when you say, you know, you know, it's good for you, don't, uh, uh, you know, liberalization is good, don't raise tariffs. Uh, that tends to have less punch and bite and salience if everyone in the world is doing the opposite. Uh, so the ecosphere, I think the broader ecosphere for liberalization around the world, including in India, has, I think, been seriously undermined by the fact of the backlash against globalization all around the world. And that's just a fact of life. The ambivalence that applies to opening more broadly also extends to FTAs. And I think that's why, you know, so the RCEP is happening and India is seen as a kind of uh, reluctant uh, participant in this RCEP. I, I think there is a sense in which uh, India has not um, completely embraced, uh, you know, FTAs like many other countries have. RCEP is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. So in those RCEP agreements, and, and maybe in some kind of, you know, India-UK free trade agreement, what are the sticking points? What are the offensive interests of India? What liberalisation do they want from other countries that those other countries aren't willing to give? And what do those other countries want from India that India is reluctant to give up? 
I think in the RCEP negotiations, I think basically the specter of China looms large, you know, um, in the sense that um, already, as I said earlier, uh, you know, there's been a huge amount of Chinese imports into India. With RCEP, the fear is that that will just get exaggerated and aggravated, that uh, we'll be opening up to China, because remember, with many of the other ASEAN countries, India already has free trade agreement. And so the opening up to China, I think, creates a lot of anxieties in India, which is compounded by the, by the sense, the perception that China in turn is fairly closed to things that India has uh, a kind of comparative advantage in. For example, pharmaceutical products. Uh, we feel that Chinese uh, uh, you know, regulations actually uh, impede access to Chinese markets. And of course, on the services side, of course, the whole labor mobility is not really on the cards because China doesn't you know, open up to foreign professionals. So in that sense, RCEP is seen as slightly imbalanced because we will expose ourselves to, to Chinese imports. In return, our areas of comparative advantage don't have much chance of getting a foothold in Chinese markets. That is why I think in the Indian political system, my sense is that the appeal of a, a free trade agreement with Europe and the UK, you know, sequencing, you know, it has to be EU first and then the UK because of, of all this Brexit uh, complications. But with the European Union, there is the sense that there is kind of give and take possible because the European Union has uh, tariffs on uh, exports of labor intensive goods like textiles, clothing, leather, footwear, where we can you know stand to gain from that. And in turn, uh, the EU wants access to the Indian automotive market, alcohol, uh, which India is, I think, in principle, would be willing to, to negotiate. Also, I think the sense that the, Europe had a big interest in the Indian financial services market in the past, and India has actually opened up quite a bit on financial services. So I think the conditions for uh, an India-EU, a kind of north-south free trade agreement, as opposed to an you know intra-south free trade agreement, which is what RCEP could end up becoming for India, uh, that is, I think, more attractive, more, the conditions are more propitious for that kind of thing. Earlier, you mentioned that when it came to manufacturing, India's manufacturing share of GDP never quite grew to the level of China and other Asian economies. But there is a success story there for India's services sector. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that since liberalization began, say, in the, from the late uh, 1990s onwards, India has become a, an, a kind of IT powerhouse. For example, services exports from India grew at something like 30% in dollar terms per year for about a 10, 15 year period. And the IT industry in India is considered one of the real successes of capitalism more broadly because there is the sense that the IT sector developed in India uh, not because of its proximity to the state. So the whole crony capitalism stigma did not apply to the IT sector because it, it was felt that it, it uh, thrived on intrinsic merit. Now, that performance uh, relied a lot on having access to international markets, especially the United States. I think something like 70% of Indian IT exports go to the United States. Basically, India uh, was a back office for doing all the coding, the software, the BPO for that. But that required Indian professionals moving 
to the United States as well. Because, you know, people think of these things being done kind of via the cloud or via the internet. That's only partly true. You do need some kind of physical presence. I mean, people forget that the Indian IT story as a success began with the fact that there were all these Indian professionals in Silicon Valley who created a kind of reputation and trust in India, which then allowed all these big companies in the U.S. to rely on or to trust India to be a source for, you know, software, coding, BPO, et cetera, et cetera. So that physical presence is required. So labor mobility for India is actually very important, um, not just labor mobility, qua labor mobility and, you know, affecting those people who move, but affecting, you know, the performance of the IT sector more broadly. Uh, the anxiety in India is, of course, that these immigration restrictions are getting tighter in the United States. I think there are lots of stories of, you know, uh, fewer H-1B visas, people having to go back because the H-1Bs are not renewed. And that could make an impact, uh, have an impact on the Indian IT and services story more broadly. I want to ask you about India's reputation at the World Trade Organization, which is which is not great. Uh, <laughs> if I had to caricature it, I would say that they have a reputation for blocking agreements that everyone else has been working hard to, to get, taking agreements hostage, so saying that they won't agree to issue A because issue B hasn't been resolved, even when issues A and B are completely separate. There is a big issue with their status when they're demanding that they get special treatment and countries like the US and, and, and the European Union have been very critical of that. So I suppose my first question would be, how does India see itself within the World Trade Organization, within that multilateral system? And we should also preface that, Arvind, you actually worked at the GATT, the predecessor to the WTO in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So you are an expert on the multilateral system. Let's begin first with in the import substitution era, for example. And I think Strobe Talbot has famously said that, you know, India is a sovereignty hawk. So if you want to preserve sovereignty and the freedom, then by definition, you're asking for permissiveness, you know, uh, no tariff bindings or very high tariff bindings and so on. So I think th th there was a sense in which Indian policy drove Indian participation. You know, if you don't believe in liberalization, you're not going to be an equal partner in the system. Um, I think that, of course, that, of course, changed uh, over the years. I have to say that in one area, I think India was, I think, absolutely right in being uh, stubborn, which is on the intellectual property negotiations, which uh, in the Uruguay round, India felt, and I was part of that process, India felt that this was basically rent-seeking on the part of pharmaceutical companies. And I think uh, history has kind of borne out that view now. So that was, that was, I think, laudable obstructionism, if I might call it that. So just to be clear, this is before the WTO came into effect, there were basically no international rules on intellectual property. And in the Uruguay round, when the WTO came into effect, there was brand new commitments that all countries had to live up to under the TRIPS agreement, the trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, minimum levels of patent protection and, and that kind of thing. And of course, uh, that was especially important in pharmaceuticals and what it did to prices of essential medicines in, in India. Now, I would say there's a kind of third phase uh, in kind of Indian participation, the way it views itself, is that on the one hand, India has this sense that it's a rising power. It's becoming a big market. Uh, so 
it's becoming a player in the system, not quite like China as yet, because uh, the, the numbers are much bigger for China, even though India's trade to GDP ratio is like China's, uh, the denominator GDP is so much bigger in China that, you know, in terms of absolute amounts of trade, China does much more. So, so we're becoming a more important player. Um, but I, I think it's a struggle between, you know, being a, a big player or becoming a big player and yet being a relatively poor country. So being a poor country, you still want to make those demands of, you know, give us more time, give us more flexibility. So I think the way the next phase will have to be for India to realize that if it wants to be a really full player in the system, that if it wants, for example, given that exports are going to be critical for India's prosperity going forward, that in order to get those, ensure that foreign markets are open, it will have to contribute itself by being more equal partners in this reciprocity. That's the heart of the WTO. You know that the WTO is about give and take. And so I think, but we're not quite there yet. And I think the big versus small dilemma, as I call it, is still being played out. Uh, but I think it's only a matter of time where the bigness will become so important that India will have to realize that if it wants to be an equal player, if it wants its exporting interests to be safeguarded around the world, including now what's happening on the visa situation. You know, if we want, for example, our labor mobility and movement of professionals to be kept open, maybe India will have to give something in return. And I think in the FTAs that India has undertaken and might undertake with the European Union, that more equal give and take, I think, will become clear, evident, and salient, which will then, I think, also transfer to the WTO at some reasonably uh, foreseeable future. At the last ministerial meeting of the World Trade Organization, the biggest bone of contention between India and, and other members seemed to be over this issue of public stock holdings. Why is that such an issue? Could, could you explain what the disagreement is? So, so the way uh, the thing works in India is that we buy, uh, we provide these minimum support prices uh, uh, to farmers. It's like a guarantee for farmers. And in turn, we sell these at highly subsidized prices to consumers. Um, so in a sense, we give these price support guarantees. That's the bone of contention in the WTO, the fact that we provide producer support to farmers, but we do so in order to subsidize consumers. Uh, so that's the whole, the, the way the system works. And I think the Indian case has been that because we have a lot of poor people, I think, you know, the last poverty estimate in 2011, the, uh, the last official estimate, uh, India's poverty was something like, you know, 18, 19% that translates roughly into 200, 250 million poor people. Uh, I think those numbers have probably changed significantly uh, over the last uh, six, seven years. So the number's probably lower now. Uh, but still, uh, the fact that we want to provide subsidized uh, uh, cereals, rice and wheat, to poor people is absolutely a completely legitimate objective of public policy. The issue, of, of course, is that do we need to provide all this support to farmers in order to fulfill this this objective we have for subsidizing households, poor households? And I think that's where I think the issue becomes a little bit tricky. And see, here's to get into the weeds a little bit. I, I think here's the really interesting that, uh, you know, you trade geeks will kind of have some sympathy for me. You see, when the Uruguay round was negotiated, right, India's primary form of supporting uh, farmers was via trade protection. 
So India was given a lot of freedom to provide that trade protection. But in turn, the ability to provide support via subsidies was actually heavily circumscribed. It was just the opposite for advanced countries. Advanced countries did most of their support through subsidies. Uh, so uh, ironically, uh, uh, advanced countries had more permissive policies on domestic subsidies, uh, whereas India's was much tighter on domestic subsidies and much more permissive on trade protection. But over the last 15, 20 years, trade protection has become completely almost irrelevant. And we want to also provide support more like advanced countries do. And we are more restricted on that. So in some sense, uh, you know, the world has changed and we took on obligations at a time when the world was very different. So I think what would be a kind of fair way forward would be for India to probably, you know, reduce the, the, the permissiveness and the, uh, it has on the trade protection, but be given more leeway on domestic support. For example, I think uh, for developing countries, you'll know this better, the restriction is that you can't provide subsidies greater than 10%. In a sense, the way forward would be for the world to recognize that the world has changed and, and for India also to recognize that the way it should support agriculture, which I think there is still some legitimacy to doing that because of the poor households we have, uh, and to just change, go from a more distortionary form of protection, which we don't actually use now, uh, to a less distortionary form of uh, uh, protection, which is the domestic price support, and kind of rejig that to some extent. Can we be specific about how that distortion plays out elsewhere in the world? Because people wouldn't care about this if it wasn't having a negative effect on someone. So is the idea that with these subsidies, there's essentially an oversupply of certain commodities and yeah. that hurts producers in other poor countries? You know, when you distort by trade restrictions, you impose a greater cost on the rest of the world. But if you use more, you know, domestic subsidies, uh, the distortion in a sense is, is smaller because the bulk of the distortion is felt domestically. But there are spillover effects from, you know, providing domestic subsidies in the form of overproduction. So I think there are restrictions in the WTO, for example, of how much you can sell abroad based on the stockholding stuff. You know, there is a kind of uh, restriction on that. But I think that you can't if you're going to support uh, agriculture or any commodity, uh, you can't eliminate the international distortion. There's going to be some spillover. Uh, the aim of all these rules is to try and minimize that distortion. And that's what I think we should aim at. Getting back to this big issue, India is a massively large economy. And so, you know, these subsidies for India, if it led to excess stocks that were thrown out there into world markets, unlike for, say, Sri Lanka or smaller countries, it could actually have massive impacts on world prices and producers in other countries in ways that are worrisome. To wrap up, how much scope do you think there is for India to improve its reputation at the WTO? I think to some extent it's happening already. And I think the more India becomes uh, a, a rising power and, you know, aware of its own, uh, uh, you know, status in the world economy, I think things will organically evolve. And I see India, you know, becoming a, a kind of uh, equal partner in these uh, trade negotiations uh, soon. I mean, uh, it, 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 it's just going to be dictated by the brute force of economic logic and economic growth in India. That is all for Trade Talks. Huge thanks to Arvind Subramanian of the Peterson Institute and the Harvard Kennedy School for telling us about all things India. Read Arvind's book, Eclipse, Living in the Shadow of China's Economic Dominance. Follow him on Twitter at Arvind Subraman. 
And also a big thanks to our audio guy, Colin Warren. And if you like the podcast, please tell everyone you know about it. Especially in India, I've heard there are potentially 1.3 billion Trade Talks listeners there. I'm not sure we've reached all of them yet. And we'd love to hear from you, our listeners. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Given India's somewhat undeserved reputation of the WTO, I think having two points of view in India are better than one.